good to have you all here. We're still talking about discipleship and being a disciple. And uh, one of the things that we just don't enjoy talking about in church world, in this church world, is the subject of money. But it's a little easier when we're talking about being a disciple and how disciples handle money. And we're all very aware, very aware by this point, that Christians are found living their life in one of three ways, right? As a believer or a disciple. And there are other groups of people that are missionaries and evangelists, people we call apostles. But the overwhelming majority of followers of Jesus are either believers or disciples. But while every disciple is a believer, not every believer is a disciple. And we've spent a number of weeks examining the, the deeper way of life, the deeper way of a disciple. A disciple. And the meaning of the word itself is a, a disciple is a learner. But not a learner in the sense that they are a, uh, a theologian or a scholar or a theoretician. A disciple is a learner in order to do something with what they learn. And a disciple's intent is to learn so much at the feet of Jesus and from the one another's that we live our life with, to learn these things so they can apply them in their life to become everything that Jesus would have them to be. They submit to the authority and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Even when it's hard, even when it goes against the culture, even when in the moment that the Spirit asks you to do something, it makes absolutely no sense, even when our own natural tendency is to rally against it, even in situations where we find ourselves faced with the fight-or-flight instinct. We have stories of disciples that have stood firm when the Holy Spirit has told them to stand firm. Now, let's say that you were an evil person and your mission was to purposely derail the life of a disciple. Okay, you have this person that you know, they are trying to follow God to the best of their ability. They're listening for the Holy Spirit. They are following his instruction. They are living under his authority. Well, let's say it was your mission to disrupt that person, to derail them. How would you do it? I think it comes down to this. Convince them that the way they handle money is nobody's business but their own. Get them to believe that God hasn't given them a gift of generosity. When it comes to their financial capacity, help them justify the lie that their hobbies and their passions and their interests are worth much more weight than they really are, that they deserve the lion's share of every dollar they earn. And never let them see what kind of idolatry this really is. The last time I spoke, couple of weeks ago, we talked about a second work of grace in the life of a Jesus follower, sanctification, the sanctified life that the Spirit wants to lead us through. He wants to guide us through this process. And the sanctification process is this continually giving away of our rights to run our own life that by my free will, I willingly choose to follow him. 
even in the face of all these things we mentioned before, when it's hard, when it goes against the culture, when it's fight or flight, when my own human instinct is to say no, we choose to live life under the control of the Holy Spirit. When we make that decision, things begin to happen. The Holy Spirit will begin to shape us. He will give us new gifts, new capabilities. We have an entire list that Paul gives us in Scripture of gifts of the Spirit, abilities and capabilities and capacities that come from Him. Things that may never have existed before in your life. All of a sudden you have an appetite for those good and godly things, things that are necessary for building up His kingdom and, and His church. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit can come at us with a hammer and a chisel too, right? And begin to chip away at those parts of our life where we have work to do. Some of the things that he takes away from us will go painlessly, seamlessly. You won't even know that they are gone. You won't even recognize that they are missing from your life. But there are other things that will continue to haunt you and you will struggle with for an awfully long time. That's just the truth. Some of the things that the Holy Spirit will ask us to give, it, give up are going to be incredibly hard and costly. Careers, homes, vocations, relationships. And sometimes we find ourselves kind of squared off against the Holy Spirit because these things that have been such a part of our life are really quite benign. They're not sinful. They may bring us happiness. They may bring us good times and joy, and, and we may actually have shared these blessings in our life, but the Holy Spirit comes to that point where he says, let it go. Some things that we're asked to give up are incredibly hard, and it's in those moments we begin to realize that these things were much more entrenched than we knew, than we thought they were, and we're desperately trying to hang on to what it appears to be our idols. But the Spirit is so convincing and so faithful. He's on to us. The Spirit will continue to show us the optical obstacles that stand in our way of where we are and where we need to be. He will do this. If I sidestep and try to avoid it, he will bring me back. He will always bring you back. He will not let you go until it's dealt with. The Holy Spirit knows every argument you could bring to the table. Doesn't he? And he has a counter-argument that is much better than our argument. And yet we can be such obstinate children. And again, not everything that the Spirit asks us to give up is bad. Some of the things are going to be very good. But we can be sure of this, that God has a plan for you, and he is asking you to trust him for something better than he is asking you to give up. When you surrender, he's going to give you something better. We become our own worst enemy. And here's the fundamental fact and the stumbling block for so many people that want to be disciples. If we give God control over our money, he will give you something of greater value, period. 
the independence that we gain and our ability to live life that we gain from our work and our vocation and our earning capacity is good. We have to earn a living. But if God isn't in control of that, it could be used by our enemy to confound us, to stifle our growth. And without a truly spirit-driven attitude toward how we handle our financial capability, whether it's great or small, without the spirit in control of that, it can become a tool of Satan. can't believe I just said that. But it can, can't it? It gets in the way of our personal growth. It gets in the way of our trust because money must be good. It says, in God, we trust on it. What if it said, I trust God with this? We can't live in two kingdoms. We, we can't practice financial peace and live the way that the world wants us to live. The two don't go together. They don't agree. We can't handle our money the way that the rest of the world does because God has very important things for us to accomplish with our resources. Incredibly important things. In everything that we do, when we reach that point of, of surrender, and one of the last things to be surrendered is our cash. We've got to live God's way. And again, the Holy Spirit is faithful. He will know what remains unsurrendered in our lives. He's just on to it. So, the Holy Spirit will convict us. He will show us the important work that we have yet to do. And if you don't go home with anything else, I want you to go home with, with this. So, so think on this. If God is not in control of our money, if God is not in control of our money, it will always feel like we don't have enough. Always. If God is in control of your money, you will always feel blessed. You can take that to the proverbial bank. It is so true. Ask any disciple. Don't ask a believer because they're not playing by the same rules as disciples are. But without God in control of our money, it will always feel like there is never enough. When God is in control, we're blessed. Even with little, we understand the blessing of God in our lives. Now, if our intent is to handle money the way that God wants us to, as a true disciple, are there some things that we ought to anticipate? Are there some key characteristics that we can find in Scripture, in the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts that, that we might want to look at? And, of course, there are. And we're going to look at three of the things this week and then three next week, but we need a little backstory here. At the time of Jesus' resurrection, the faithful Jews were still practicing the tithe principle. And if you grew up in church world, you know all about this. In the earliest days as a nation, as, Jesus, as God established the Jewish nation, and they entered into their promised homeland, into Palestine, God prescribed the law. 
He handed it down to Moses as they were on their way to the homeland, yet they hadn't gotten there yet. He gave them the law, a new way of life for this select group, this new race of people. And within the law was a formula for maintaining this way of life that God has called them to. Not their neighbors, but he had called them to. It was separate. It was distinct from all the other nations. And he established this manner of equitable contribution from every person, every family, every tribal unit. From the earnings of your harvest, if you were a farmer or owned a vineyard, from the earnings of your flocks and herds, if you had cattle and sheep, from your vocation, if you were a craftsman, from your investments, from everything that you had and everything that you had earned in a year's time, your entire portfolio, a tenth was to be given to the priests to both acknowledge God's goodness, acknowledge God's blessing on you, your family, the nation, and secondly, to maintain the operation of, of God's house, the sanctuary, and the religious order that God had established. And at the time of the resurrection, they're still living this way. About 1,500 years after the law had been given, they're still living this way. In fact, we have eyewitness accounts in the Gospels that Jesus and his, and his disciples were continuing to pay their temple tax. But after the resurrection, this world-altering event where Jesus named it and did it, almost overnight these believers came up with a new understanding, an entirely new practice, an entirely new mindset surrounding money and possessions. They gathered this new realization of the role of money in the kingdom of heaven. This is what the eyewitness Luke wrote in Acts 4. He said, all the believers were one in heart and mind. There were no disagreements on this fact, on this fundamental. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Get this. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. We're already starting to hear, since we are already in a presidential election cycle, we're already beginning to hear certain candidates talk about socialism. And some people will make the case that if Jesus were alive today, he'd be much in favor of socialism. I mean, Acts 4, here is our proof. A couple of things. First, Jesus is alive. And second, I would agree maybe that a, a shallow look at these verses as evidence uh, can be a little bit convincing, but when you dive deeper toward the true heart of Jesus and these first disciples in the kingdom, what you're going to find is 
it's even more costly than you think. Socialism is this human construct where uh, your initiative and your production and, and your c capabilities and your capacity are owned by either the company or the state and some other entity spreads the wealth as it sees fit. But Jesus' way is much more radical than this. Jesus' way is much more costly than this. Listen to this story. It's from Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man says, teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell. How much? Everything. What if that was the question before us this morning of how bad we want to follow Jesus? Would we be willing to go sell everything for the privilege of following him? See, the cost of discipleship is everything. Everything. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Of course you're invited to follow me, but it's going to take everything. At this, the man's face fell, as I'm sure ours would. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. When you start hearing these comments about Jesus and socialism, we need to remember that Jesus is not in favor of the confiscation of your money. He's in favor of you willingly giving it all. Not to have it taken from you, but to have a heart so generous and so open. Whatever you want, it's yours. Much more radical, much more radical and much more beautiful. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about the end of his life, he also said, no one takes my life from me, I give it. Six things we need to understand about this struggle to follow Jesus. And at times, it can be a struggle. We'll look at three this week and three next Sunday. The first thing is, a disciple will be asked to sacrifice. There is no path to discipleship without sacrifice. You must sacrifice. We come to him broken. Were any of you whole and holy people when you came to Christ? Okay, it's unanimous. We were all messed up, right? We needed a savior. We weren't looking for a belief system. We were looking for a relationship with someone who could take our sin, set us on the right path. We come to him broken. 
And his intent, along with the Spirit, is to put us back together. And that means it's probably going to look a lot different than we ever assumed it would. And as he makes his home in our lives through his Holy Spirit, he's going to say, Jim, see this here? Take it out to the curb. Get it out of here. We can't have this where we live. Find a dumpster. Burn it. But get it out of your life. And we, we may not know why he asks us to give up these certain things. We've talked about this a little bit already. We may not know why he says, abandon that, and that may be good. It may be, sometimes, I've found, maybe to test my obedience. Maybe it's to give it up for a span of time and then find that he allows it back into my life later. Sometimes we give up things for the rest of our lives, other times for a season. But we can always be certain it is for our good. Always be certain it's for our good. In Luke 9, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. The constant act of putting myself first in every situation. And take up their cross daily and follow me. Second, a disciple will often be tempted to acts of unsacrifice. Sometimes you'll hear a, a, a minister talk about, um, you know, we, we lay something on the altar and either it crawls off the altar or we go fetch it from off the altar. That thing that we have, have made a definitive statement. God, I abandoned this. Two weeks later, it followed you home. Happens a lot. Just to, to illustrate how faithful the Holy Spirit is. I got convicted last Sunday when Sharon was preaching. Wednesday, I called her up and I said, honey, we, we, I didn't call her, I texted. I said, we need to do something. And I said, here's, here's what I'm thinking. And I want you to agree with me, but you're the boss, so we'll do what you say. <laughs> we had gone to Alicia uh, about a month ago, and you know that we've been going through some uh, health issues with Sharon and uh, some health issues with our house. Our house needed, uh, our home needs a new sewer line, so we're going to have to dig up the old one and put in a new one and then with medical expenses and, and whatnot uh, about a month and a half ago maybe a month ago Sharon and I had a talk and said we feel okay about this decision so let's make it what we were going to do was not tithe our regular 15% but drop it down to 12% and it made sense in that moment and it was going to provide a little bit of relief in our household budget. But when Sharon was talking last week about Paul and Paul's instruction about if you want to follow Christ, look at my example. Do you remember her saying that? We cannot stand here, she and I, 
and say, follow our example. If in real life, what happens is we decide to make a cut somewhere. We can't stand and say money is, is something that you just have to surrender on one Sunday and then come back the next or the previous Sunday have said, uh, follow our example. So we called Alicia back and we're back at our regular rate and we believe that God will lovingly sustain us through everything. He will. We believe that he will give us something greater. Money problems? We've had those already in our past. What's another one, right? But the anticipation of what God may do in the next year in our lives, well, that outweighs everything. It, it's, it puts that little 3% difference in our charity, it just blows it out of the water. And we came to a unanimous decision that if we're going to pastor you, lovingly pastor you, and pray for the best for you, in a sense, we, we just kind of renewed our commitment to you, to this church, to God, and to the uh, fidelity of our own personal budget, that this is the way it's going to be. We know money struggles. We're no different than you. But we know, too, that money issues and how we handle our money can just disrupt the life of discipleship. Third thing. A disciple will be asked not to compare their experience to someone else's. Here's what I mean. If we've all come to faith in the same Jesus, if we are all pursuing the path of discipleship, it's going to look different for each one of us. And while we are to exist as patterns for one another or look at our lives or examine our lives, if you you want to know what following Christ looks like, it's going to be different for everybody. There are some things that God will convict you of that he will not convict me of, that he will convict Sharon of, but not Zephy. That's just the way it is. Because the Holy Spirit knows where we need the work, not where they need the work. We're the specialists when it comes to where they need the work, right? And we are also specialists at not listening when the Holy Spirit tells us where we need the work. The Spirit will work in you in a specific and dynamic way if you obey. If you obey. Right after the resurrection, in that span of time when Jesus is is still hanging out and uh, hasn't gone to heaven yet, he has that encounter with Peter, you know, the feed my sheep one. And they get that squared away. And he tells Peter, Peter, you're not going to have a real easy life. You know, there's going to be some, some rocky parts to it. And in fact, um, there's some great advice for old guys in, in that little portion about, you know, people are going to be leading you around and teaching you how to dress yourself again. And, you know, anyway. But Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
Don't compare yourself to John. Don't compare yourself to Sharon. Don't compare yourself to Doug and Carmen. Don't, don't compare when it comes to how the Spirit is working in the life of someone else. You follow Jesus. You must follow me. Next Sunday, we'll look at three more things. But they will be things that fill you with hope and joy and optimism. But all of them come back to this idea of who's in control here, who's in charge, who's the big dog, who do we listen to. We all worship. We all worship. We worship different things. If it's beauty that you worship, the ravages of time take their toll, don't they? Tomorrow we will not be as beautiful as we are today. Speaking for myself. If money is what we worship, if money is our idol, there will never be enough. Never. But if we follow, follow Jesus wholeheartedly with everything that we have, struggling for the sanctified life, you're incredibly blessed with things more valuable than gold. If you live in need right now, if you live in struggle right now, the chances are pretty good. It's because God doesn't control those things. And that's the issue between believers and disciples. Let's pray. Father God, how easy it is sometimes to say, well, everything belongs to God. You know, it's, it's kind of a bumper sticker theology that we've come up with and we say it. And we say it cheerfully, but we don't always live like it. We live as if we will let the Spirit go this far and no further. And again, God, as, as we've said, if we very easily wanted to derail the life of a disciple, it very often comes down to money and how it's handled and who it belongs to. We're so thankful, Father, that the message of the New Testament is so consistent, so consistent. And we are so challenged by the idea, God, that, that Jesus isn't for confiscating from us, but for our hearts to be so changed that we willingly give it all. Only you, by your Spirit, can affect this kind of change in the human heart, in the human psyche, in the human will. How you do this, I don't understand. 
but I know it's true. In our family, we have left a lot of good, good things out at the curb. But how you have enriched us. You surprise us. You surprise us. Father, for my brothers and sisters, this, this is more about discipleship than it is about money. God, may they know the fullness of life in Christ, the beauty of life in Christ, the legacy of life in Christ, the pattern that they set for children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters as they live life in Christ. God, help Sharon and I and, and Marcy and help us to be patterns. Not flawless patterns, Father, but, but solid patterns of how we are to live. God, for all these great gifts that you give us, we give you thanks. For the ability to work and earn a living, we give you thanks. And for your son who bled and died and was beaten and rose again, Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for our church. We thank you for its effectiveness, for its mission, for its purpose, for its resolve to look beyond itself and not to gaze inwardly at ourselves. God, sustain our work. We believe it's valuable in our city and we believe that it is showing fruit. We believe that you would have us keep on keeping on. So, Father, hear our prayers this morning as we come and we celebrate the bread and the cup. God, may your Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts and our, in our minds. Touch us where we need to be touched. Change us where we need to be changed. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.